I can certify that that was Spanish, what Joe read. <laughs> Praise God. Um, I'd like to invite you to go to your Bibles or your bulletins to John chapter 12. Um, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 26 as we continue our walk through the book of John, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. This is the word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey, donkey's coat. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gathering nothing or gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, were some Greeks. So this came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of the wheat of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we come together to thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your only song at Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to save us from eternal condemnation, to give us new life and new hope. 
And we thank you, Lord, that you have sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to empower us and enable us to read this from your word and believe in it. It is no our own doing. It is a miracle that comes from you. Your work in our hearts, in our lives. Therefore, we thank you and we praise you and we honor you. And we pray together, Lord, for anyone who still don't know this Jesus who gave his life for our salvation. We pray that you may open also their hearts to know this truth, that he might trust in you and believe and therefore be saved as we are, just of because what you have done. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a common hope among the people of Israel, and this hope was based on what they learned from the Word of God, from the Bible, the Old Testament. And this hope was that one day God will send a Savior who will come and rescue them and save them and deliver them from slavery. And that, this, and that this Savior will be also a king like David. That was the common hope of the people of Israel. They were expecting that. They were looking forward to that. I think if you will go around and ask the people of Israel, at least those who believe their Bible, their Old Testament, they will agree that they were waiting for that Savior. Then Jesus came and showed all of them that he was that Savior, that he was God. And we've been studying together how he showed to them that he was God incarnate. Through the many signs that he did, through the words that he said, he was proving to all of them that he was God. Especially as we've been studying together these past weeks about how he raised Lazarus. It was evident to everybody there that he was God. And yes, many believe. Many saw the sign. Many saw Lazarus coming out of the tomb and confirm and disconfirm in their hearts what they have been thinking for a while when they were seeing all the things that Jesus was doing. That he was that Savior, that Messiah, that King that was coming to save them. The same sign was seen by also the religious leaders. And we have seen that they did not believe. Think for a moment about that. Their concern was that the Romans would be upset that a king will be placed in Israel. But that was actually what they were waiting for as well. They were waiting for a savior. They were waiting for a king. And when they had the king and the savior in front of them, they rejected him. They were afraid that this savior and this king will make their life more difficult. That they will take this place away from them, meaning the temple, 
and also the city, the nation, will be destroyed because of that. Therefore, they had a different probably understanding of that Savior. Maybe they thought that that Savior would come to them first. That that was his first step to the throne, which is that he will come to the religious leaders who were supposed to be his representative, and they will have a strategy how to get to that kingdom. But know the way Jesus was doing it. That was too much. That would just make things more difficult. And all this because they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was God. Now, when we think about the people of Israel and we wonder what did they believe their Savior will come to do, they knew that he was coming to save them, to rescue them, to deliver them, and establish a kingdom. But save them from what? Rescuing them from what? Establishing a kingdom for what? Well, as we read in the Bible, we understand that they were expecting a king that would deliver them from their physical enemies. In this case, at that particular time, that will be the Roman Empire. They were expecting a king that would set them free from the oppression of the Romans. And then that he will establish a kingdom where prov- that will provide security for them, that will make their lives easier here on earth. Then how do we know that too? Remember when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fishes and fed the 5,000, what did they want it to do? Right away, they wanted to make Jesus the king. What did Jesus do? He went away from them. But they followed him. And when they found him, he said to them, you are only looking for me because you ate the food that I gave you. Work for the food that doesn't perish and that leads you to eternal life. Jesus was revealing to them, even at that very moment, the kind of salvation that he was bringing to them. So basically what we see here in these verses is Jesus explaining to them, to the people of Israel and even to Gentiles, how he will save the world. How he will save them. Remember, they are thinking that he's going to save them by defeating the Romans. By establishing a kingdom that will help them to live a better life here on earth. But Jesus, in these verses, in few words, explained to them how he will save them. And the second thing that he explained to them is how their sanctification, which is how they will be transformed, is an extension of his saving work. And we will understand that more as we go through these verses. First of all, Jesus explained to them how he will save them. Remember, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Many believe in him. Many believe in Jesus. And therefore, there is a dinner offered at Bethany when Jesus comes back. 
Um, Martha served Jesus, and Lazarus enjoys fellowship with Jesus, and Mary worshiped Jesus. All of this because they have seen the glory of Christ. They, are, they know they are in front of glorious Jesus, and therefore they are worshiping him. They are embracing Jesus as their Savior. Then, the next day, after that dinner, is coming or is getting close, the feast, the great feast of Passover, when all the Israelites are gathering together in Jerusalem. And they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And what happened is that the crowd took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Lord Jesus, and they were crying, Hosanna, salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Why did all these people do that? Well, if you read verses 17 and 18, you learn that the crowd that saw the miracle when Lazarus came out of the tomb went out and became witnesses to others of the glory of Christ. They have become evangelists. They are telling others, here is one who raised people from the dead. Therefore, people in Jerusalem are joyful. They are saying salvation finally is here. The hope that they have. They hope that that promised one, the Messiah, the Savior will come, is right here. Therefore, they come and welcome Jesus as the King of Israel. What did Jesus do? Remember, I just told you that when they wanted to crown Jesus as the King of Israel after he multiplied the breads and fishes, he went away. He didn't embrace what they wanted to do. It is because his hour had not yet come at that time. It wasn't the moment. But at this moment, it is the time. Therefore, he embraced what they are trying to do. Jesus finds a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And if I read for, for you from Zechariah 9, 9, says like this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous in salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. This is from where this test comes from. Fear no, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. What did Jesus do? He fulfills the promise from the Old Testament that the king of Israel, the Savior, will come in this way. But how will a king come at that time who will deliver them in their minds of the oppression of an empire like Rome. 
He will come in a horse. Or he will come in front of an army, ready to fight against the enemies. But no Jesus. Jesus is coming in a donkey. Pointing to the fact that the battle that he will fight, it is not against Rome's army, but it is against sin. It is against death. It is against the enemies not of only Israel, but the whole world. Therefore, that Jesus is coming and embracing what they are doing. They are saying, salvation, the king is come. Jesus is saying, yes, I am here. I am the king that is coming. Remember, Jesus didn't reject Mary's worship, but rebuke Judas because he's embracing who he is. And he's making it public to them. Now his disciples did not understand this. They only understood this when Jesus was glorified. And think about this. That words appear twice or sentence appear twice in our text when Jesus is glorified here in verse 16. And Jesus used it also in verse 23, the Son of Man to be glorified. Referring to his death on the cross and resurrection. For the people of Israel, that king that will be glorified will be glorified because everybody will be exalting him, bowing down before him, recognizing him as the king, and he will defeat all the enemies. And Jesus will be glorified, really, on the moment when he defeats the worst enemies, death and sin on the cross. The disciples did not understand this until that moment, that Jesus was fulfilling the scripture, that Jesus was saying, yes, I am the king. They remember these things. Now, look at the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And it is interesting how God fulfilled his purposes even through the mouths of those who were rejecting Jesus. They say, you see that you are gaining nothing. They are saying to one another, this is out of control. Everybody is believing in him. Everybody is embracing him as the king. Look, the world, the cosmos, has gone after him. The world. This could be an exaggeration, what they are doing. When they say the world is coming to him. They might only mean that part of Israel that was following him, that was following Jesus because they have seen his glory. But they were actually right. And you know, this is very well organized by John, the evangelist, when he put this piece together. He says in verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The world was divided into two groups, Jews and Greeks. And look who were looking for Jesus, Greeks, in a sense representing the Gentile world. Why are they there? 
Probably because they were God-fearers. What is a God-fearer? Somebody who was a Gentile, who have not been circumcised because he have not become a Jew, but actually believe the Old Testament, believe God. He's attracted by the teaching of the Old Testament. So they are going there to Jerusalem also because though they are Gentiles, they are attracted by the message of God in the Bible. Who are they looking for? Jesus. The Pharisees were right. Look, the world has gone after him. And we will see that magnify as the disciples go and spread the gospel, not just among the Jews, but the Gentiles. And the nations are coming together. Remember the words of Caiaphas, who said that it's better for this man to die than a whole nation to perish. And John interprets that and says that he's not just referring to Israel, but referring to the nations that God is gathering together as they follow Jesus. So, the Jews are following Jesus because they have seen the sign, because they have seen that this is indeed the Savior that they were waiting for, they are looking for that Hosanna salvation right now at that moment through the king that is coming to defeat their enemies and make their lives easier, better. And Jesus goes to tell them that he's actually coming to save them of something different that they are expecting for. When Philip and Andrew goes to Jesus to tell Jesus that the Greeks are coming to talk with him because they have heard about Jesus and his power, look what Jesus says. Right away, think about this. Andrew, Philip, the Greeks, the multitudes are expecting what Jesus is going to continue to do to establish his kingdom And Jesus says, the hour has come. If you leave a choice like that, probably they will think, oh, great. Great things are about to happen. The hour has come. We're going to crown the king. He's going to rule over Israel. Right now, every knee will bow down. And our life will be better thinking about living without the oppression on the, of the empire. But Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How will Jesus be glorified? What they were expecting of Jesus being glorified, they will have been expecting more of what they saw when he raised Lazarus from the dead, right? More signs more wonders, the next one will be greater. And later, nobody will be able to stop Jesus. But Jesus explains to them what does it mean for the Son of Man to be glorified when he uses this metaphor, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth 
and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was speaking about his death. Unless he die, there will be no fruit. And what is that fruit? That fruit is salvation. That fruit is that you know today that you have eternal life. Think for a moment that this was the story of humanity. We get it from the Bible. The fall. Adam and Eve disobey God. But there is no Genesis 3, 15 and 16. There is no that promise. And there is no all the promises that are moving forward throughout the Old Testament. And there is no Jesus coming. But let, let, let us make it even worse. Let's think for a moment that actually humanity will believe and understand that, yes, there is hell. There is eternal condemnation. Think about that every single human being is born knowing that he will go through life with joys and sorrows and that his last destiny is eternal separation from God in hell. I was sharing this with the Hispanic group um, before we came here. And somebody in the group actually had a great point said, I think that people will stop having kids. Because they will be thinking about, I don't want to be bring kids to a life where they are going to go through life and they know that their final destiny is hell. But I will add to that, that nobody will be okay with getting close to death, to dying. And this is all hypothetical, I know. But that was the condition of humanity before the promise that we find in Genesis 3.15. That Jesus will come and defeat our worst enemy, Satan, sin, and death. And when Jesus says to those who came to tell him, that the Greeks were looking for him because they are attracted to his glory as the, the Jews were looking for him because they are attracted to his glory and they are thinking that something great is going to happen. Jesus said, yes, something great is going to happen, but this will only happen if I die on the cross. Now, I don't want to assume that you are here and you understand what does that, what does mean. Why does Jesus dying on the cross mean salvation for you? And it is because we are all destituted from the glory of God because we are sinners and our destiny is eternal condemnation. The wages of death is, the wages of sin is death. Therefore, we are destined to die. And what Jesus does on the cross is that he, on the cross, takes your place and receive the punishment that you deserved so that you are granted grace, salvation, 
eternal life. That is why Jesus says that it was necessary for him to die to bear fruit. We are that fruit. Our salvation is that fruit of Jesus' death. Much fruit indeed because through so many generations, many people have trusted in Jesus and are saved just because he died on the cross. Second, how their sanctification is an extension or how his, his how our sanctification is an extension of his saving work. He continues to tell them not just about what he's about to, to do, but also what, does, what that means for them and for us. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever lay, hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What Jesus is saying is that as he died on the cross, we also have to die to this world. Whoever hates his life in this world doesn't mean that now you look around and you hate everybody, and you hate the world, and you hate the beautiful creation that God has given to us. But it it means, as Paul thought and said, that all his accomplishments in life compared with the surpassing worth of Christ were just like rubbish. They were nothing. It means that we know that the momentary afflictions of this life are no worth comparing with the glory that is to come. It means that we understand that what Jesus has to offer to us is greater than just expecting a kingdom on this earth where everything is easy and good for us. Jesus had something greater for us. And what's that? It's eternal life with him. It's the promise that he will restore all things and make them right. And he has started that through his work on the cross. Jesus says, if anyone serve me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Where he was. He was on the way to the cross. Where would you follow him? To the way to the cross. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. We also have this wonderful encouragement and promise for all of us as believers. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant will be the last word that God will say if you have committed your life 
to Jesus. It is not because your works are beautiful, but because his righteousness is counted as a righteousness. It is because his righteousness is beautiful. But also, through his righteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to follow the same road of Jesus. To die to ourselves. To trust in him. Brothers and sisters, our hope is greater than the things that this world has to offer to us. Our hope is greater because Jesus has done it all. Jesus paid it all. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is our Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you provided a way for us. That you did not leave humanity without hope because you provided our Lord Jesus who came to die on the cross to give us eternal life. We thank you that today, as we read these words, we rejoice that the hour came when our Lord Jesus Christ was glorified through his death and resurrection. And we gather together to praise your name for that. We also pray, Lord, as we partake together of the Lord's Supper, that you prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we come together in remembrance of this gospel, in remembrance of what we just read, that Christ died to give us eternal life. In remembrance that through our faith in Jesus, his righteousness is our righteousness today. In remembrance that Jesus Christ defeated the power of death by, by coming back from the dead. And he is risen. We're coming today celebrating his victory on the cross, our King, our Lord, and our Savior. And we're coming today announcing that this Lord is coming again. That's what we do every time we partake together of the Lord's Supper. We remembered this wonderful, great news that we have in his word. But also, we are nourished by these elements. There is real koinonia, fellowship with Jesus every time we partake of these elements. Who is welcome to this table? Anyone who has trusted in Jesus for salvation and is baptized because baptism is an external sign of this internal reality. You are welcome to partake of these elements. But if you are not yet a Christian, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, we encourage you not to take these elements as they pass by you. 
We encourage you to think about this as we partake together. We encourage you to think about salvation that can be yours also if you trust in Jesus. Let me pray and we'll partake together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you brought us together. You gave us the blessing of coming as one body to take these elements. We pray, Lord, that you prepare our hearts and our minds, that you help us to meditate in your sacrifice and your victory on the cross and to be nourished by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.